0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. My goodness, Herds. Yeah. We've reached the end of Sophie Hannah's Silent Night. And I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I wanna say that. That's I wanna say because I, I have a lot of criticism, criticism to make at this oh, book. No. I'm about to go, I'm about to go at it. But mm. I want to be very clear before we get into the proceedings today that I had a great time coming up with all of these complaints.
1: Before you absolutely <laughs> slaughter this novel crucify it on the altar of literary criticism <laughs> as is your good given right I really enjoyed this book I think that this is going to be a fun one to talk about because obviously it's a funny book yeah. which gives a lot of big points just because I don't want to read another depressing crime fiction novel about how horrible everything is I love me some upbeat it's crime true. fiction we
0: had lots of lots of very <laughs> grotesque happenings in our readings for the festival we hosted earlier yes this year. we have
1: so I appreciate that also, we're getting into spoilers. I mean, it's full spoilers from here, but like we're, we're going to get into some stuff about mental health and the way that it's portrayed in crime fiction. And I think that this novel, while still putting, let's say, one foot into the trap of saying that, you know, the crazy person did it, I think that it is better than most, yeah. Um, and it agree. does a good job of talking about the trauma that would lead someone to our criminal state. Let's say I
0: think to summarise what's happened in this stretch of chapters, yes, please we've returned to Frailing's Low House, uh, Frelly, and the house has promptly disappeared. What, Metatextually speaking? Okay. And Poirot and Catchpool and sort of Mackle. He's he's technically there. Uh, go about <laughs> mm-hmm. rounding up our our hooligans who've been involved in this crime. Giving a last couple of questionings before Poirot sits the ensemble cast down. Well,
1: also they they have catchball hide in an alcove for like an hour. Yes. Which is a really weird scene. Mm-hmm. Poirot says basically, I want you to sit in this this I mean, I'm calling it an alcove. That's not the term they use, but that's what I was picturing. Literally like yeah. like a grave, standing grave that you, you like put them in there. And and he says, I want you to question this particular person in this particular way about some things that happened. And report to me what they said. And obviously the person that catchpool is interrogating is the criminal. So the scene involves a bunch of characters walking past catchpool and having conversations with him. And so you're like, oh, well, that person's not the criminal then. And this person isn't the criminal. But who is the criminal? And then-
0: Then we finally uh, get the denouement and Poirot (laughs) goes to explain himself. And as is often the case, people say, Poirot what are you explaining here? Can't you just tell us the answer? And Poirot and says, no, I can't tell you the answer because then you'll ask a bunch of questions and I'll have to go back to what I was going to be doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a very fair point. Mm, it's true. And then, of course, we catch the killer, we figure out what was going on, and then we cut back to that opening scene we had in the prologue where Catchpool corrects Poirot and Poirot says, nope, no, nope, I was right all along, You're silly Catchpool.
1: He acquiesces and says, you know, maybe we can both be correct, perhaps you're more wrong than I am, which is a bit of a mean mm-hmm. way of putting it. You could just say that I'm more correct than you are. I feel like that would be a more positive way to continue. I'm just saying. I
0: mean, listen, I felt that it was a very appropriate continuation of their totally very, very platonic sounding dialogue.
1: Very heterosexual. Yeah. I don't know. I just would have liked the book to end on a positive note rather than a <laughs> you're more wrong than I am note, which is which is fine. You know, it's- same meaning. I, I thought it was said in jest. Anyway. I mean, look, point is they're both right and they love each other. That's the, that's the main thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. You see, we're just, re- we're recreating the scene <laughs> right here. Anyway. I, I thought that this, I thought it was really fun. First of all, I will say, I thought that this stretch of chapters was fun. It didn't take too long. Stuff was well paced out. It was efficiently told. But I think the biggest thing that I felt was that there's a bunch of stuff that just went unresolved. Sure. And not that there are like loose threads where I'm like, oh, what about this mystery question? Just parts of the narrative that had been set up that were never really given a payoff.
1: Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, for me, I, I know you have a big one that we've we've already mentioned before we sat down today. But for me, the biggest one is the house itself, because the, the house, Frelly, the fact that it's falling into the sea is like a big metaphor for how the family is falling apart, even though it looks yeah. ostentatious and grand. It's full of dark, evil secrets and that sort of thing. And like, actually, everybody hates each other. Jonathan and, is is it Janet? Janet, they, yes. Yeah, they are of the opinion basically that if Arnold dies in the house, it will taint the house forever, which I would think metatextually that the house falling further into disrepair or even literally falling into the sea, not that we necessarily need that level of grandiosity at the end of this novel, but like- Don't get any <laughs> ideas,
0: Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh, don't you dare, but like- that said, I wouldn't mind seeing him adapt this book. Yeah, for sure, I would love it
1: it'd certainly adds some legitimacy to the continuation of the Poirot novels. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I would like to have seen Frelly literally fall into the sea, is what I'm trying to say. And it didn't need to be that huge, but yeah. there isn't really a conclusion to the Frelly story arc. You know, Poirot says, I probably can't fix it. And that's really the last that we hear about it. We hear that it's just a problem that can't be fixed. But then Poirot goes on to solve the mystery and catch the killer and Arnold dies. But the the house doesn't reflect any of those steps forward in the narrative.
0: I think the thing is, is that you, you could, for example, if we were doing a, not a continuation story of Agatha Christie, you could do something a little bit metaphysical, have some cracks appear in the wall when our accused, you know, screams out in agony at the end of the story. And like, I don't know, maybe some glass shatters and it's like, oh my goodness, the house is resonating in, in, in with her pain or whatever. And like, but you know, I, I don't think that's very much the purview of Agatha Christie. But I think the thing that is lacking is that there is no finishing note of narration or anything. You know, nobody even walks up to, like, a crack on the wall and comments. You know, I don't think any of these suggestions are the greatest thing ever, but th-
1: there's nothing. Yep, there's no recognition <laughs> of the house as a meaningful character. Like, we often talk about these murder mysteries where the house- I mean, shout out to Yukio Aetsuji's new book. The Labyrinth House Murders. But, like- there are all these murder mysteries, particularly Ayasuji's work, that are based around the house being one of, if not the most central character. And I think that Frelly could have sort of occupied that space, but it doesn't quite.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's not just a modern thing too. You know, for example, Nao Marsh, when we covered last night at the Vulcan. Yep. The theater. Uh, the theater was very much a character in that book.
1: Yeah. It, it housed all the dark secrets of the actors and the, and the production staff. And then- And it, like, getting set on fire all the time was a metaphor for those tensions rising to a boil, right? But it's definitely part of the conversation when you're deciding how extreme you want things to get. Because I think the most extreme sort of events that occur in this book is the poisoning of Poirot, right? Like, I feel like that's the most extreme that it gets.
0: Mm, Well, I mean, and I think that was the other big admission that you you were mentioning of mine earlier, where Cynthia as a character gets absolutely no resolution. You know, she... Motivates a lot of the plot by getting them there in the first place. She poisons Poirot. And then the last inkling that she has on the scene is that she interrupts the stakeout that Edward is doing, but doesn't actually stop it.
1: Technically, she delivers the letter of the culprit to Catchpool. So I, I feel like the reason why Cynthia doesn't get a proper comeuppance for her crimes or even a proper character arc is partly because... This is a character that Sophie Hannah wants to have as a recurring creature, you know, a, a tool. Whenever Cynthia shows up, you know she's going to boss Poirot around and we're going to use her to explore the dynamic between Catchpool and Poirot in a little bit more detail. Maybe, I maybe. feel like you would leave those stories unresolved so that Cynthia and Frehley can come back in future novels. That's my assumption.
0: Because the, the thing is, right, is that I, I think that as she is portrayed in the novel, Cynthia is- arguably undeserving of redemption like I don't think she should have ended up being the hero but it also would have been good to see Poirot and Catchpool find a way to put her as an agent of chaos to use in the end of the story yeah I'd agree whereas Catchpool almost kind of goes backwards in his competency in dealing with his mother through the novel which was strange to me like you know true to life people's parents can be difficult to deal with because there's years and years of whatever intensity emotional baggage but it was strange that like his rage builds towards the end of the novel and it neither culminates in anything or results in anything
1: yeah i mean Cynthia's motivation for deploying poison twice uh, is is basically to further the plot along which is a fun reason both you know in the in the physical sense and also in the metatextual sense and it's funny it it is funny it is we got to keep the plot moving but like she could have used that in the 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 Denement scene to poison Douglas for instance who is basically an accomplice, could have drugged him into, you know, not participating in the final sequence. He gets up to like stop Poirot to punch him in the face or something. And then he goes, wow, there must have been something in my tea. You know, there'll been no a way to deploy that.
0: Yeah. I mean, even if Vivienne had tried to run and it turned out Vivienne that, like Catchpool had <laughs> taken the stuff as he'd been told from his mother and put it into Vivienne's tea. Or as the case may be, iris haskins
1: yeah i suppose we should get into things then you are going to be getting your your full points just by by the way I'm sorry oh, thank, thank you thank you i think you did an excellent job of have i have
0: i done my uh my claim five for this i year. don't know
1: i don't know i know that i haven't i know that you haven't which i intended we'll talk to do about. It earlier
0: this year and i may have but i will we'll check the records we'll check the records please do
1: I know that I said that I would use it on the last novel did, in the year indeed. that I got to solve, which I may or may not have already done. We're going to find out very soon. How
0: unusual of us to forget our own bit for the year.
1: drama in Flex and Herdsland. <laughs> land. But uh, yeah, so I, I'm giving you full points because you, you figured pretty much everything out. You didn't quite figure out the mystery surrounding B Haskins being her exact relation and the fact that Zilla is her daughter, which is a whole thing. And I think that's kind of an interesting... Subplot, I guess, that the real reason why Mackle takes Poirot to this is the house where all the nurses live is to clue you in on the fact that they're living together for a reason beyond just being the nurses. Right. I
0: did. I will say I did write down when B. Haskins first appeared Uh that Sophie Hannah breaks stylistically from her character introductions to note how old she was seemingly to directly make it clear that her age is of interest to the mystery
1: i didn't notice that but that's a good that's a good call it's a shame you didn't say that on air we cannot legally i have a time stamp on my note very much oh i'm sure that you do (laughs) uh in any case i i really enjoyed the way that that seemingly comedic side adventure where mackle ruins everything yeah is actually, like, one of the biggest clues to direct you towards this super secret mystery. Although you did pick out- The unfair clue. The visual clue. Yeah. Which I love because, as we talked about a bit last week, it's not just unfair to Catchpool because he never spent the night in the hospital and saw that B. Haskins looks an awful lot like Vivian um, and and also Zilla, but it's unfair to the audience because this is not a visual medium. Yeah. So that was really fun.
0: Yeah. I will say- it was a little
1: weird trying to track down that clue. I mean, you picked it, so.
0: Yeah, I think we can I think we can get into that in the tail half of the show because I want to talk that in like a bit more detail. I
1: mean, I think there's definitely a discussion around like just because it's called out as being an unfair clue, is it still an acceptable thing to have in your novel, that sort of thing?
0: But ultimately, I think at the end of this story, I had a grand time with the narrative. I thought it was well told, I thought it was well paced, I thought that the things you were discussing last week heard about how it is comedically engaging through its pacing. And I think also I could have done a better job saying that, like I enjoyed that comedic pacing because it threw itself under the bus was one of the things. (laughs) Sure. Like there are these points of tension where the novel will say, ah, and then this thing happened and it cuts away. And I said something to the tune of like, it didn't matter, but I I thought that that was to the novel's strength and those ideas are bold and fun. That was really cool. So even though as we've spent, you know, the first part of this show largely complaining, I think it's all like, you know, just that, that last 5% to make it a properly like inspiringly great novel as it is, it's a great read.
1: It is. I think it's really fun to read through. And as I said, like just subjectively, it's been really refreshing to get into a crime fiction story that's a bit more uplifting than the other ones i've been reading and yeah if you're just looking for a good time i would strongly recommend silent night now that we've you know talked about the spoilers the, you know what's happening but still it's a great time it's <laughs> let's, just a good read on its own uh, let's jump into
0: the mystery at the end of the show you're listening to death of the reader your murder mystery world tour on 2sr 107.3 stick around You're listening to Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour, here on 2SER107.3, Flex and Herds discussing it, Sophie Hannah's Silent Night, all the way to the end of the story. Full spoilers are engaged. And Herds, I think, mystery wise, there is one question that you mentioned earlier in the show that we can't get away from it. Having the key unfair clue be a man relieved of his senses through unfortunate. Mental hurdles, yes, and having the culprit have a moment where another personality overtakes her.
1: Yeah, it's it's unclear exactly what's going on, and honestly, this is actually part of Poirot's discussion with Catchpool, so it's clearly meant to be a point of like, eh, you could interpret it, interpretate, you could interpretate it this way or that way, <laughs> because Poirot essentially says that the person that we know as Vivian Laurier was aware of their past life, aware of their own secret. You know, they knew what they were doing. They knew they committed murder. And so they were consciously working to preserve their secret. Whereas Catchpole takes, I would say a more compassionate view, though Poirot argues an incorrect one that says that it, it really was about like protecting her own psyche, protecting herself from the trauma that she experienced from being excommunicated from her family following her own betrayal of her family, which is a whole thing where she like outs her sister as having a baby out of wedlock is is basically the story. And the question we come down to, I guess, is was this depiction of of Vivian as a person with MPD, basically, maybe, um, was it an ethical one? Because I definitely think that it's it's better. Like, I've read murder mysteries where you find out who the killer is and they say, oh, I grew up in a psychiatric ward and that turned me crazy and I just like killing people. Yeah, yeah. And clearly this is not that, right? Like, we are not in the realm of cartoonishly evil, crazy people. But the novel does highlight, there's actually a really great moment. I, I enjoyed this moment where I think it's Dr. Osgood says- Vivian quit acting like a lunatic. You're not going to get off the charges based off of that and then somebody else says I think it's B. Is actually, it B? Right. B says she's not pretending. Like this is this is who she is. This is something she's dealing with.
0: The thing that I liked about particularly B being the person to say that is very compassionate. Is that it, it is very compassionate and I think it also shows that like you know, it was a lack of compassion that led to her getting excommunicated both through her actions and through her family's lack of understanding. And like, whether we actually ascribe permanent mental condition or trauma to her actions, it's very clear that the way that Sophie Hanna is writing it is about that compassion. Sure. Which I I think is like the the thing that it it scrapes past the ick test for me. (laughs) I don't think it's going to scrape past the ick test for everyone because there is a long and troubled history, as you say, Mm. of crime fiction doing a pretty poor job with this sort of stuff, though there are a lot of modern novels that have in this vein tried to go back and like critique and amend the genre's past in that sense.
1: As always, one of my favorite parts of detective novels is the denouement and the way that the the criminal reacts to it, you know, whether they lash out or they go along quietly or something. You can tell a lot about the motive behind the crime and the sort of criminal that we've been sort of tangling with at that point. And Vivian's response uh, when when she sees B is to completely break from reality. And I mean, th- this isn't quite a mental health thing, but I, I thought it was an interesting little nod to have, is it B's boyfriend be called Nicholas because St. Nick and all that. So we're still tying it into the idea of like jolliness, which was, which is interesting.
0: Uh, that did not, I confess,
1: cross it's my just, mind it's at all. Just, but it's just, it's just, one yeah, of those it's, things. It's Christmas Eve, bro. I guess that is also kind of interesting that the theme of Christmas really permeates the story, certainly through the middle and, and the beginning, but by the end it's almost completely forgotten. But let's, let's not worry about that for now. I personally think that this story is a decent demonstration of someone with a with a mental condition that is affecting their lives. Yeah.
0: I mean we were saying last week how they portray Professor Burnett is very much that everyone's, you know, talking about his accomplishments rather than his ailments. And he's a professor,
1: right? Yeah. Yes. Like I think that the the fact that that Vivian's or or Iris's in in the confession letter they say that Iris is the criminal Iris's actions were done on a spur of the moment sort of reaction to a problem rather than being premeditated or to enact some sort of insidious revenge. I think that putting that down to, you know, a spur of the moment decision to avoid the trauma that caused this problem in the first place is a pretty good reason for the crimes to happen. And obviously the fact that Poirot and Catchpool you know, talk about the problem is, is a big step in the right direction.
0: Although I will say I did I did find that the now that it's there
1: theorem yeah, thing that we introduced we, when introducing the trees- We haven't talked about that at all, but- didn't, didn't
0: really hold weight for me. Like, I didn't think it was going to be as a bigger feature of the tale of the book as it was.
1: Lex, I, I thought we'd move past complaining about the novel, but yeah- I, Well, it's not I necessarily definitely... that I have a complaint
0: with it. It's <laughs> just that uh, in in terms of like- the layout and fairness of things. It it was quite fair that you know we we had this this device introduced and it was introduced in a way that was fun and engaged with the comedy
1: of the story. By mm-hmm. catchball, which is fun.
0: Yeah, it does end up sitting a little strange in that final scene.
1: Yeah, I mean, let me let me put it this way. I I haven't brought it up at all in the past two weeks of discussion, even though it does feature in the end of the novel. But that's because it it's fun. And I I like it as a way of characterizing Catchpool and his mentality towards solving murders. I think that was, and and engaging with people even, trying to orchestrate a pattern given presumptions that, you know, we we can all agree on, you know, now that it's there, let's build around it. I think that's really fun. But I also don't think that you necessarily need to ascribe to that theory in order to solve the mystery. I think that you could take it out and the house would float fine if we took out that particular supporting piece of the foundation.
0: I think the other thing that I did like in terms of the mystery setup is that one of the other tangential mysteries we have the entire story along is why Poirot came at all.
1: Yeah, because the people were jolly, because the people being yes. killed are jolly.
0: I really liked the way that in both that thematically tied into it being a bit Christmassy, I liked that it was a secondary mystery that didn't, Necessarily obstruct or complicate the main mystery, and it was still kind of just fun to think about in a bit of a lighthearted way. And there's something interesting to me about like the portrayal of Poirot, and how, depending on which Christie novel you read, there are different aspects that she's highlighting depending on what era it's in. There's all these different things. Like I know when we read Murder on the Orient Express, my, my takeaway was, damn, this really is the smartest man I've ever read about. (laughs) Whereas when we read like Halloween party, it's a bit more of that kind of buffoonish side of him that a lot of the pre-Souche adaptations lent into. And this novel, I thought through that opening setup, both gave you a, a little fun brain teaser to go along with the main mystery, but also did a really nice job of making him feel like a sincere character with his idiosyncrasies, which I think is something that Christy herself especially suffered with when she started to get sick of him.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at the risk of ruining my reputation as as the heart of the beating heart of this show, um it, <laughs> it also is a really good clue because it again ties into that Father Brown mystery where they're trying to figure out why is a man who seems so happy? been killed and you know that's central to one of the Father Brown mysteries It's quite good but in this story the reality is that nobody wanted to kill these people they they were well liked by their families and by their acquaintances and it was only because well for Stanley because they happened to be in that hospital room and for Arnold because he happens to like Poirot's work. They're not being killed for any specific reason. They just happen to be in the wrong place or the wrong family at the wrong time. And that's why they needed to to be bumped off, right? Which I which I like quite a lot. I, I like that seed of they're such nice people. Who would ever want to kill somebody? You know?
0: Well, exactly. Like as the opening question of the novel sets up, the the core question that this book is asking is what if the motives weren't the tropes? Right? like was it for love was it for money was it for this or that or the other the answer is sort of yes but
1: i was going to ask what your answer is because i f- i feel like because i feel like being fun here i feel like the motivation is is still tied to that that jolly idea that vivian's happiness is tied to never running into b haskins ever again right so she's prioritizing in a sense her own happiness over that of these other characters exactly
0: and like that's that's one of the fun things is that so many of the themes are like really well integrated in that sense we're like you know i was describing the why did poirot come thing as a brain teaser but the brain teaser is not mutually exclusive from the mystery the Mm -hmm. b mystery of who uh, Rosalind and romeo are is Like, not necessarily the biggest problem to solve, but also clearly ties in with the themes of, like, trust and familial power and leverage that Catchpool plays into, that the four siblings play into, that the two uh, groups of parents living in Frelingslo play into.
1: And also, like, I think happiness being sacrificed for other people's happiness, like Edward Catchpool's happiness is sacrificed for that of his mother. You know, like when you go to a family gathering to some extent, I mean, it, it depends on your relationship, but for me, to some extent, I am sacrificing- he tells on himself I am, the Hold on now. I am sacrificing the comfort of, of either being at home or with, you know, the friends that I choose to hang out with to go to my parents' place and not get to swim in the pool and have a bunch of food that I didn't choose to have. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I love my parents, but Christmas is- often a stressful parents, time. But... It is often a stressful time. <laughs> so I'm trading an element of my happiness for that of my parents, for that relationship, yeah, yeah. right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's also like one of the themes, right? <laughs> yeah, it is, is that this 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 is very much about that sacrifice yeah. where you know, Arnold is so determined to sacrifice for his family for the that he's lost sight of what they are sacrificing for him to sacrifice oh, for man. them.
1: I'm so glad we're talking about the sacrifice theme because I, I feel like I hadn't quite fully appreciated it until this conversation, but yeah, the amount of money that he, he, cause yeah, he, he doesn't spend money on himself so he can spend it on his children, but then he sees money spent on keeping the house up as equivalent to spending money on his children. Cause the f- yes. Frelly is part of the family. And so in reality, he's sacrificing his children's happiness for the house, right? Yes. Like, yeah, it's it's a more complicated relationship than what the characters articulate. But everybody's sacrificing for their own happiness or for another's happiness, which is really cool. It's a good theme.
0: I love it. I think all in all, like, you know, as as we said at the end of the first part of the show today,
1: this is this is a damn good book. It is. It's a good time. It's a damn good book. It's a, It's got good themes. It's funny. It's got Pyro in it, which yeah. you can't hate, I don't think.
0: Unless you're Agatha Christie. Unless you're Agatha
1: Christie. I just want to write less Poirot and more Miss Marple. She's the moneymaker,
0: you know. <laughs> I don't even think that's true. That's
1: <laughs> no, not true. She could have been. She'd learn how to wield an. Uh, listen. N-16 I'm sure we're going to
0: get some emails about about what either of us has just said. Good.
1: I'm excited for that. Let's go.
0: It's political hot water <laughs> in the crime fiction world. <laughs> so, Anyhow, hurts. Yeah. It's time for us to pitch our last book yeah, for the
1: year. what's happening, Flex? You tell me.
0: <laughs> now, Herds, there was an agreement made behind the scenes, underhandedly, dastard dealings. Uh-huh, yep. Wherein I agreed that we would cover Sophie Hannah's Hercule Poirot Silent mm-hmm. Night, not over Christmas. Yep. If we had a sufficient narrative device to conclude our year instead.
1: Uh-huh. I remember The this. narrative
0: device that you pitched to me, Herds, yep. was that we start and end this year with Benjamin Stevenson.
1: Yeah, foolishly. Foolishly, I pitched this as an idea. Unfortunately.
0: <laughs> it was a good idea at the time. Catherine yes. de Palou Menager, in the intervening weeks, forced my hand, <laughs> and we've now both read everyone
1: on this train as a suspect. Yep. We've sacrificed our own happiness- for a convention which is it's classic. true which means that we need a sacrificial lamb yes. to
0: read everyone on this train is a suspect by benjamin stevenson and up to the batter's plate mm-hmm. steps <gasps> dr kate evans Doctor. of abc radio nationals the bookshelf Ooh, i've been on that show that was fun uh but this of course means <laughs> heard that you don't have another book to solve this year yeah so, so
1: i have a thought it depends how combative Kate is willing to be on the show but <laughs> I
0: you want to claim Kate's points you want to you want to put we... Kate Evans in to get your 5 points at the end of the year
1: It's either that or the inverse where she's playing for the away team and every point that she doesn't get I receive Oh I, I like that's that. the idea Let's that I that. I definitely meant to pitch to you before today but here we are let's do it, it that's live radio for I you know minutes. I'm stuck now I've made the devil's contract let's do so that Kate you and me in the ring let's fight let's go
0: I hope you let herds down and <laughs> carry points. me through to the finish line <laughs> Dr. Kate Evans uh, we'll be back with chapters 1 to 11 of everyone on this train is a suspect oh by Benjamin Stevenson our last novel for the year before review season kicks off in January it's gonna be great this is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. Mm.
1: We'll see you then. See you next time. We're out of here. More trains. All aboard the gun. Choo choo.